as they're making their way to the back, if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Genesis 48. That's the sound of unbridled enthusiasm. It's a good sound. We're in the last part of uh, our study in Genesis. Uh, we're covering chapters 48 through 50. I was just thinking as, uh, as we were singing uh, over the, the months that we've been in this book, um, God is, uh, is providential in His ordering of things, even those things that we think are somewhat uh, chaotic or unplanned. Uh, God is good uh, to show us that in every way, whether we plan for it or not, He's ordering our steps. This is uh, just speaking for myself, and I hope would be something that you could identify with as well by way of encouragement. This has been a, a good time of study for me personally. And one of the things that, um, that has been so encouraging and meaningful to me in light of recent events is to come back over and over again in Genesis and to see not only that God has an unshakable um, intention and desire to bless His people, that blessing will come to His people, but to also see that God is good, even when it's difficult for us to see the goodness of God in the experiences of this life. If you've read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when the children are first hearing about this Aslan character who's the king, they find out he's a lion, and one of the girls says, oh, I don't know if I'll like that very much when I meet him. You know, is, he, is it okay? Is he safe? And the character who is telling them says, safe? Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion, but he's the king. He's good, right? And that juxtaposition that our lives with God are not safe in the way that we would like it to be in terms of always being calm and placid, but that whether it's in calm times or chaotic times, God remains good nevertheless. So Genesis chapter 48 through 50, we're going to tackle this as a unit. We won't read everything, but one of the uh, overarching idea that we want to try to work into our hearts and minds from this section, looking at the death of Jacob and then of Joseph, is the realization that by faith, God's people look to the future with confidence. By faith, God's people look to the future with confidence. Start with me in Genesis chapter 48. Verse 1, now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty has uh, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, 
and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. They shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And then skip ahead a little bit further. Skip to chapter 49, verse 28. Jacob has just met with all of his sons and given them a final blessing before he dies. And we read in Genesis 49, 28, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one, with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of uncertainty and chaos and tumult, we ask that you would continue to strengthen our faith in such a way that we recognize that there is no good thing that you withhold from your people, that even when we cannot understand or make sense out of what's happening around us, that we can rest in the promise and in the assurance of your word that you are good and that all things work according to the counsel of your will. Help us, Father, with faithfulness and with trust to continue to walk humbly before you, eagerly anticipating all of the great rewards and blessings that you have in store for us. And it's in the name of Christ that we ask this. Amen. Uh, Let me say before we start in on the sermon, I maybe should have done this as soon as we dismiss the kids. One of the things that that I've been thinking of uh, frequently as we're getting towards the end of Genesis and the way that um, the the lives of these patriarchs are sorting to run their course and be wrapped up, you you think, you can't help but think a little bit about the way that uh, the course that our lives take, the way that God uh, orchestrates and works the twistings and the turnings of the paths that He sets us on. And of course, in in part, not only... um, do, I think we all take a bit of self-reflection, but hopefully we also look and consider the people around us as well. And as uh, JT mentioned earlier, we know that we have a lot of people in the body here at Edgewood who are sick and suffering. We know that we have people who are grieving uh, loss of life from uh, family and friends. And as the elders and the, and the pastors have been talking, of course, our hearts are heavy with the, the heaviness that exists in those circumstances. And so, 
This is very spur of the moment. Uh, we're not putting any sort of undue weight or pressure on anyone, but we felt it would be, it would be good and helpful if uh, we had a, a prayer meeting tonight uh, here in the sanctuary from 6 to 7 o'clock. If you can come, come. The sole purpose of, of this prayer meeting is just simply to pray for the people who are sick and grieving in our body. We're, we, we don't want to cover any kind of business agenda or anything like that. We just want to come together and we want to pray and intercede um, for the people that we know that are struggling in our midst. So that'll be tonight at 6 o'clock. Hopefully, some of the things that we look at here in this passage of Scripture will inform us and prepare us even for our time of praying later on this evening. So if you're able to make it, I would encourage you to do so. We're not going to have a nursery or anything like that, so if you have to come with kids, bring the kids. That's okay. We'll, we'll make it. Uh, and we'll give some time to, to prayer, to asking the Lord to be good and kind and gracious, interceding for our brothers and sisters, and uh, we will uh, together take a turn to bring these concerns and these cares to the Lord as a body. We think that would be helpful. We think it would be meaningful, not just by way of encouragement, but because we know that prayer is one of God's appointed means to accomplish His purposes in this world and in and through His people. Now, all of Genesis 48 and 50, or perhaps not all of it, but almost all of it is given over to recording the deaths of Jacob and Joseph. Two chapters, essentially, 48 and 49, are all, uh, all move around the impending death that we know is, is right there on the cusp of happening for Jacob. We know before he ever gets to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph that he's already growing weak and tired. He's lived a hard, challenging life. God has been faithful to him, but he's weary, and he knows that his time is drawing short. And there's a way in which the, the telling of the story, the, the last sort of days and weeks or months even perhaps of, of Jacob's life are sort of um, deliberately drug out in these final chapters so that the last portion of the reading of the book of Genesis, we, we're just confronted constantly with the fact that Jacob is about to die. And then as soon as Jacob leaves the scene, at the end of chapter 49, we go into chapter 50, and there's some significant things that happen with Joseph and his brothers, but Genesis 50, the, the conclusion to the story, ends with the death of Joseph as well. And it seems that as you consider that the focal point of this last section in Genesis is on the death of Jacob and Joseph, that as you read and you consider what it is that the author is recording, what it is that he makes sure to tell us, that the concern is not simply to say that Jacob and Joseph died, but to say something about how they died. And what is being communicated in these chapters is meant to tell us something about what faith looks like for God's people when God's people are reaching the end of the road as we know it in this particular age, in this particular life. What is faith good for when you reach the end of your road, when you're drawing your last breath? Is faith that thing that you cling to while you're working life out, 
in your teens, in your 20s, in your 30s and 40s, as the kids go off to school, as you adjust to being an empty nester, as you deal with the fact that you experience failing health, right? you cling to faith then, but then, but then what good is it when you're at the end and you actually can't do anything but die? It sounds brutally fatalistic, doesn't it? But unmistakably, what Genesis does is it shows us that faith is not just an essential ingredient for God's people as they walk actively, energetically through life, but faith is essential and is necessary and is a gift for God's people even when they draw their last breath. By faith, God's people can look to the future with confidence. So there are two things that we want to try to point out in support of this overarching theme of looking to the future with confidence by faith. Number one, what we're going to see, particularly from Jacob in chapters 48 and 49, is that God's promises are as certain as death. Right? You got the popular phrasing, there are only two things certain in this life, death and taxes. Genesis says, no, there are three, death, taxes, and the promises of God. So number one, God's promises are as certain as death, and number two, God works all things for our good in fulfillment of those promises. God's promises are as certain as death, and then number two, related to that, God is working all things for our good in order to fulfill those promises that are certain and secure. Look at what we have in chapters 48 and 49 with Jacob. In verses 3 and 4, we're just going to drop in on a couple verses here to, to draw a couple points out. At the end of chapter 47, the last paragraph that we have is Jacob making Joseph swear to him that he will not be buried in Egypt, but that he'll be taken to the promised land, to Canaan, and be buried there along with Abraham and Isaac, his forefathers and his ancestors. The symbolism of that is that even though Jacob will not live to see the fulfillment of the descendants of Abraham taking possession of Canaan, he is sure and certain that that's what will happen. Therefore, if that's where God's people are going to end up, that's where I want to be buried. So he makes plans for what God's people will do after he's dead and gone. So Jacob is sick, and Joseph is called in to meet with him, and notice what Jacob does when Joseph comes in, starting in verse 3. The first words out of Jacob's mouth, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Do you hear that? Joseph comes in to find his father on his deathbed, as it were, and the first thing that Jacob wants to talk about is what God has promised him. 
and to talk about what God has promised him that Jacob now knows he is not going to live to see with his own natural eyes. Even though his life on this earth is going to expire before the promises are fulfilled, what Jacob wants to talk about is the sure fulfillment of God's promises. He is looking beyond his own mortality, his death, to say, the thing that I center and have focused my life on even to my last breath are the promises of God. Skip ahead a little bit further in chapter 48, verse 21. After Abraham, after Jacob has blessed Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which in and of itself is a display of his confidence in the future for God's people, he says this to Joseph in 48.21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And then he goes on to say, and I'm giving you, Joseph, an extra portion of the inheritance. So both on the front and the back end of this interaction with Joseph and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, what Jacob wants to talk about are the promises of God and how he is certain that God is going to make good on those promises, even if he's not the one to enjoy the fulfillment, at least not yet. Look ahead at chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will come upon you in the days to come. What is Jacob talking about? Is he talking about the past? Is he talking about the present? Or is he talking about the future? He's talking about the future. So he's going to go through son by son, and he's going to pronounce some sort of a blessing or some sort of a statement that will in some ways prophetically speak to what lays ahead, what lies ahead for his sons and the generations who come from them. In that statement, not only does he speak directly to the sons as individuals, but he speaks to the reality or the descendants, the life that will come one generation, two generations, multiple generations down the road. And you see this most clearly when he gets to his son Judah. So skip down in chapter 49 to verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? And then take note of verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes." and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are, Nasby says dull, but maybe dark is a better word. His eyes are dark like wine and his teeth white from milk. 
It's sort of bizarre to our English Western ears, but here's the point in that prophetic statement. The, the blessing that Jacob pronounces on Judah is one that somehow, some way, Judah and his line are going to be gifted, are going to be blessed with rule and authority among all the other brothers, among all the other tribes of Israel, and that from that rule and reign will not just be the fact that there will be a king who will be seated with a scepter, but that eventually that rule and reign that's given to Judah and his descendants is going to culminate in this full blessing that is described as the wine and the milk and the good stuff is going to be flowing so much, you'll be washing your clothes in rich wine. Wine will be so abundant, it'll be as cheap as water. Milk, you'll have milk three meals a day. You'll just be overflowing with blessing. Now, notice that in this statement, Jacob is speaking about things that will happen in the future through Judah and his sons when there is no indication that they are on the verge of seeing this reality. Jacob and all of his sons, including Judah, are living in a strange foreign land. They do not look like kings. They do not look like men who are about to rule and reign over a kingdom. Judah is not the firstborn. He's the fourthborn. This is not the man that you would necessarily pick out to found the ruling dynasty of your people. And yet, Jacob, perhaps speaking better than he knows, but through, I think, God's revelation to him, is speaking about things that will take place of which he will never experience himself. But he is so certain that these things that God has revealed to him are going to take place, he will spend his last moments sharing that with his sons. The things that matter most to us are the things that we tend to talk about. And the things that matter most when everything is said and done, when we face our last dying breath, typically the things that matter most, so long as we have the wherewithal and the clarity to speak about it, those are the things that we want to talk about. Those are the things that we want to remember. Isn't it interesting then that as Jacob comes to the end of his life, what he wants to spend time talking about, what Genesis tells us he spent an inordinate amount, talking, an amount, of, amount of time talking about is nothing less than all the promises that God has given to him and all of the things that God is going to do and is sure to do even after he is dead, gone, and buried. Jacob can say, in essence, I am 100% sure that any day now I am going to cease to be. And I can also say with 100% certainty that God is going to make good on His promises. I am as confident in the promises of God as I am in the reality of my own mortality. Is that the kind of faith that you enjoy? You know, it may be that one of the reasons that we have such a hard time letting the things of this world go 
is because we don't have the kind of confidence that we need in the future that God has promised to us. The more certain we become that what God has for us in the future is better than anything He could give us now, the more capable, the more willing, the more eager we are to take our hands off of these things, to get our eyes off of them, and to turn and look somewhere else, to recognize that this world is not our home. This world, this order does not provide for us a lasting city. We are looking for the city that's to come. It's hard to live by faith. I know that. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's hard to believe in things that you can't see and that you can't touch. But that's what we're called to. That's the life that God has given us, to live a life of faith. Listen then to the way that the story continues to work itself out as Jacob actually comes to his last breath. Chapter 49, verse 33, the last thing that he does is remind his sons that he wants to be buried in the promised land, and then we read this in Genesis 49, 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Anyone notice what word or verb is missing in verse 33? I didn't recognize this. Someone else had to point it out to me. Hold your place here and go back. This is always dangerous to do something on the fly. I think it's Genesis 25. Yes, Genesis 25, verse 8. Listen to how Abraham's death is recorded and compare it to the way that Jacob's death is recorded. Genesis 25, 8. Abraham breathed his last. That's what's said about Jacob, too, right? He breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Abraham and Jacob both breathe their last, and they're gathered to their people, except in Jacob's case, it's not mentioned that he died. We know, of course, that he died. He drew his last breath. But the point, or the emphasis seems to be on the gathering that takes place when Jacob draws his last breath, which has a very subtle, profound way of drawing our attention not to the fact that Jacob dies, but that something is happening after Jacob dies. He's being gathered to his people. Now, all of this you could take as just being sort of euphemistic or metaphorical language for what it means to die, right? We, we, we all go to the same place. But hold your place in Genesis 49 and listen to what Jesus says. Go to Matthew chapter 22.
Matthew chapter 22, down in verse 31. Jesus is being tested about the resurrection. He's, they're, they're trying to trap him. And as he gives an answer to this brain buster that the religious leaders try to give him, Jesus makes this interesting comment in Matthew 22, 31 and 32. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The point that Jesus is making is, if your concept of life is one that begins with your birth and ends with your death, you do not understand the power of God. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if their lives ended when they died, God would not identify Himself for generations to come as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see? The fact that God would say, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, must mean, in other words, that in some way, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still experiencing the Godness of God. So, Jacob draws his last breath. He certainly dies, but Jacob is, along with Abraham and Isaac, is gathered to his people. We're not told where, but as we continue to think and read through the Scriptures, I think the thing that we have to conclude is that Jacob is gathered to his people in the presence of God. Our lives are not over when we draw our last breath. God is God to His people now as our hearts beat, as we draw breath, and in the same way that He is still, even at this present time, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He will continue to be your God when you are gathered into His presence. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. When the author of Hebrews is giving examples of what it means to live by faith, it's interesting that when he gets to the patriarchs, do you know what he highlights, what he, what he puts the focus on? He puts the focus on the death of the patriarchs. So you see this, for example, in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 13 for just for a moment. All of these, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then skip ahead in Hebrews 11, look at verses 21 and 22. 
by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Of all the things that the author of Hebrews could say about the life of Jacob and how his life points us in the direction of faith, of all the things that we could say about the life of Joseph and how his life demonstrates the value, the certainty of faith, Hebrews says the way to really see the faith of Jacob and Joseph is to see what their faith looks like when they die. When you strip everything away, when they know that they are not going to continue in this world as they have known it all of these years, what does that faith look like? And Hebrews says that faith looks like the kind of faith, the kind of confidence, the kind of hope that compels a man to approach his last breath still thinking and talking about what God is going to do in the future. He is still looking ahead at what God is going to do, about the blessings that are to come. That's what faith looks like. Two things we might want to say about this. First, if the promises of God are as certain as death, as certain as we are that death comes to all men, that certain we can be that God's promises will be given to His people. If that is true, and Scripture is everywhere telling us that that is true, if God can be trusted, that means that we have promises and blessings and we have a future that nothing can kill, that no one can take from us. Jacob and Joseph and Abraham and Isaac before them, and for hundreds of years, their descendants are looking forward to the day when God will make good on His promise and give them a land, give them a home that they can call their own, where they are going to be dwelling with God and God with them. That's not just an Old Testament hope. That is our hope too. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. In Romans, Paul says, in Romans 5, 17, listen to the connection that Paul makes. Paul says, for if by the transgression, the offense of the one, talking about Adam, death reign through the one, much more, much more than death reigning, much more than that, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. If death 
reign through the one. Is there anyone on this earth who is exempt from the curse of death? There is nothing more certain in this life, in the natural order, but that we all die. And Paul has the shockingly insane confidence to say, much more than death ruling in this life, much more than that is life that comes after. Much more than death ruling through sin is the rule of God through His anointed King, Jesus Christ. And much more certain than your death is the guarantee that you will be raised to rule and to reign with Him. If we have a future that death cannot kill, that no one can kill, that kind of hope, that kind of expectation ought to shape the way that we talk. It ought to shape the way that we think, the way that we plan, the way that we dream, what we aspire to. It may be that one of the things that we ought to consider more, just to be brutally practical, have you ever thought about what your funeral will be like? That's morbid, Merritt. That's gloomy. That's a downer. Jacob didn't think it was pessimistic, fatalistic, a downer to talk about what would happen when he died. Listen, guys, because of my hope in the promises of God, here's what that means for my funeral. Here's what that means for how and when and where you will bury me. Everything for Jacob, including his death, is tied back into the promises of God. And then look at what Joseph says. At the end of the book, Genesis chapter 50, skip down to verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which He promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You think Joseph took some cues from his dad? You think Joseph took to heart the way that his father spoke on his deathbed? That seems to have shaped Joseph in a significant way. Joseph is saying very much the same thing. I am about to die, but 
God is going to continue to fulfill His promises to us. And Joseph says, verse 25, Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you will carry my bones up from here. For living a life that is so rooted in this finite world, Jacob and Joseph seem to give an awful lot of thought and attention to how they want to leave this world. Both Jacob and Joseph are essentially saying, the last thing that you do with my bones the last thing that you physically associate with me is going to be an act of faith that you are going to carry out. My death is going to continue to point you in the direction of faith. Parents and grandparents, guardians, aunts, uncles, those of you who have any kind of influence or sway with younger generations, there is nothing better, nothing greater that you can give to your children or your grandchildren or to anyone else who would look to you as an example. There is nothing better that you can give them than to give them reason to consider to think about the promises of God that do not end in our death. Do they know that that's what you're living for? Or is it just cheap talk that comes around once a week when you got to do the church thing? Do the promises of God so shape your life that everything that you encounter in the workplace, in the doctor's office, on the operating table, on vacation, in surprises, in disappointments, is everything that you experience, is it filtered through the grid of God's promises? That's what it means to live by faith, that you live the kind of life that is ultimately confident that God is going to do exactly what He said He would do, whether you see it now or you see it in the life to come. We look to faith or we look to the future in confidence because of our faith. But notice it's not just simply the fact that God's promises are as certain as death, we have the added benefit or the added blessing of knowing that God's goodness is being worked out towards the fulfillment of those promises even in the here and now. So here's the famous statement that Joseph makes that we're all familiar with. If you know anything about the Joseph story, look at chapter 50. Jacob has died, the sons have gone, and they've buried Jacob in Canaan. They have returned to Egypt, and we pick up in Genesis 50 with verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Every single thing that happens in this world, every event, every circumstance, every detail, every surprise, all of that is working for your good. All of those good things that God is working to bring about are all moving you towards the good blessings and promises of God. Do you hear what Joseph said? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He does not say, you meant it for evil, and then God came in and cleaned up after the fact. At one and the same time that evil was happening all those many years ago, at the same time, simultaneously, was God doing a good work. And we say once again, if that is true, if that is something that we can bank on as an article of faith, that means that there is no act of sin or wickedness, whether we commit or committed against us, that God cannot, in His providential grace, prove to work to our greater good and His glory. And that includes death. Because of the fact that we have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection, because Christ has been made our brother, that means that all of the things that God does, all of the providential events that He works out are done decidedly for us with fatherly affection, not with blind fatalism not with a heavy, austere, uncaring hand. Everything that God does for your good comes with His affection in Jesus Christ. And you and I, as we grow in that faith and that certainty, we have the advantage. What a joy, what a peace to know that everything that happens ultimately is working to my good advantage. 
That doesn't mean that you will always be able to know and see what that good or what that advantage is in the immediate event. Joseph did not know how his being sold into slavery and being hauled off to Egypt was an act of goodness for God's people. He did not know what the road ahead would bring about for him, but he can look back on it and he can say, I see it so clearly now. And what he sees so clearly is what he couldn't see earlier when he was in the thick haze and fog of suffering, which was that God is always, always, always actively working. God is never passive. He never sleeps. He is always working for His people's good. And so we're called to simply trust and to say, even if I may not understand, I still have faith in the promises of God. It is faith seeking understanding. Don't switch those around. If you wait to understand before you will exercise faith, you will fail miserably. You start with faith. You start with what God has revealed, and you say, even if I can't make any sense out of the events of my life, I believe that what God has said and promised is true. I believe that these things are working out for my good, and I will believe that, and I will preach that to my soul with confidence, even if I cannot order those events and show how that good is going to come about. I know that they will. One of the good things about being put into the body of Christ is that all of us are able to speak better than what we live, right? In some ways, it is a fearful thing to stand up here and to preach this, right? Because you know what it goes on in the back of your mind. All right, Merritt, let's see if you practice what you preach. Right? Here's the thing, though. The reason that God is good and kind to put us in a church body, a church family, is because there are times when our brother or our sister may not be able to preach that, this truth, to their hearts in the way that they ought to. And you have the gift, the privilege, to come alongside of them and to graciously, lovingly, Apply medicine to suffering hearts and to assure them that even if they may feel abandoned, even if they feel weak, that God has not turned His back on them. And there will more than likely come a day when you will be in that position as well. You will be desperate for words of comfort to come to say, just wait, be patient. Don't give up. All things will work together for your good. Let's pray. Would you take just a few moments to reflect silently?
on this scripture and on these truths. Father, we humbly admit that we are scared and frightened little children who are weak and frail. The smallest things throw us off of our confidence and off of our assurance. But we thank you that even in our weakness, you continue to remain faithful to us. That by your Spirit, you comfort us, you remind us of the truth of your Word, you bring to mind and settle in our hearts the fact that you have a favorable, loving, and kind disposition toward all of your children because of the forgiveness and the reconciliation, our adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Father, for a church who has seen its own share of suffering, who is seeking to minister and to encourage those who are going through difficult times right now, Give us the wisdom and the sensitivity to be able to graciously speak comforting words to suffering people rooted in your promises, and yet to give each other room to be able to suffer and grieve in the midst of a fallen and broken world. Help us in all things to grow in our confidence and our assurance that all that we hope for will one day be fulfilled and provided in a renewed heaven and earth where Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness apart from any sin, suffering, sickness, and death. We ask this in your name. Amen. As Andy comes and, and closes our service out with, uh, with a song, don't forget tonight at 6 o'clock, if you're free, if you're available and can come for a time of prayer for people who are sick and suffering in our midst, we would really love to see you. No pressure. We know it's last minute, but we just felt led to do that and would love to have you here. I'll see you at the door on your way out. Let's stand and worship. And when I reach my final day, Will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home. The Lord is our salvation. Who is like the
God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. The Lord is our salvation. Thank you. You're dismissed. God bless.